We're in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. <clears throat> Controversy, healing, and the ingrate. That's the title of the message today. You'll see why it's called that as we move along. John chapter 5, verse 1 is where we begin. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we've spent a few weeks going backwards. We kept going back to the other previous text so that we would have everything in context. But now things have just shifted. So in John chapter 5, verse 1, and they'll catch up in a minute. In John chapter 5, verse 1, we kind of begin with the controversy, but not with the big one. We're going to have some controversy here, but it's going to get bigger. And it's not something you came in to do today. You didn't come into church and say, oh man, another controversy in Scripture. But that's where we are. Earlier, Jim asked you to take your textbooks out and have them ready. You're going to want to do this because this may be something that you haven't noticed before. And you might want to take a second look. So in John chapter 5, verse 1, that first verse, you'll see this controversy. If you look up in any type of a commentary, listen to any type of expert, the question that's going to come up is, what feast? That, that's in every single commentary that I looked at, and I looked at several what feast? Could it be Purim? That's what we celebrate that. That was being celebrated then. Could it be the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Dedication or the Pentecost or Passover? Could be any of those. However, more than likely, it's going to be Passover or Pentecost. One of the P's, you'll see them circled up behind me, because it's probably one of those. But let's look at what R.C. Foster, the great scholar, theologian, and preacher, said about this particular passage. There's a quote, you'll see it come up behind me. The identification of the feast is a decisive factor in determining the length of Jesus' ministry. If it was the Passover, then there are four Passovers in the ministry of Jesus, which must have lasted through three years and a fraction. So that means he had three-plus three years of ministry. And that's why it's important to kind of try to figure out which one it is. But it's not as important as the other controversies that are going to spring up. You'll see that. Let's move on to verses 2 and 3. You can read along behind me or in your Bibles. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, the first little piece here we need to look at, I left a note up here in the English Standard Version in my particular large print copy. It says that this is, could be Hebrew. It's Hebrew or Aramaic. And then the second note you see, Bethesda, you'll see the footnote pop up. Some manuscripts say Bethsaida. 
And there's actually a third that comes up in other manuscripts. Beth Sasta, and I don't have it up here. But see that C that just popped up that just came on the screen? That, that one is kind of a bigger controversy. In your textbooks that you have with you, before we do anything on the screen behind me, I would like for you to look up John chapter 5, you're in that chapter if you're already there, and, and look at verse 4 specifically. Look in your textbooks, John chapter 5, verse 4. In a minute, I'll put something on the screen. Some of you have noticed it's not there. Okay, so you'll see up behind me why this is. You'll see a, this is what it says in the footnote of my Bible. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part this part, which is the end of verse 3 and then verse 4. Waiting for the moving of the water. That's where these people have been waiting. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water, was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, just on the surface of this, this doesn't even seem to fit the nature of the God that we know throughout the whole Bible. Because, think about this system. So here's a pool of water. By the way, this is another controversy, too, that I'll just throw in there. What, what, what is this pool of water? What is this? Uh, where is this? Well, there was one particular place where there was uh, a spring that fed it, and it was fed by hot springs, which actually bubbles did come up. So that might be the one they were talking about. But whatever the case, the people had this belief that the Spirit of God would stir the water, and the first one in gets healed. Now, you imagine for a moment, if you've got all different kinds of people around the pool waiting to be healed... You've got somebody who cannot get up and move. They can't move themselves. Somebody has to help them into the water. This person can't, probably can't feed themselves. They probably can't go to the restroom by themselves. They have to be cared for by others. And then you've got somebody there who has a hangnail that's really bothering me. It just gets on my nerves. Who, which one of those two do you think could get in faster? So is it the nature of God that the healthiest should be healed every time? because they're the fastest? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit anything we know about God through the Old and New Testament. No, God's not going to create a system that the fastest one in is going to get the best blessing. Whoever the fastest is among you, if you have a cane or a walker, or you're in a wheelchair, or you're bedridden, too bad for you, you get nothing. It's kind of weird, isn't it? So at the very... Least, we know that if this is supposed to be here, we definitely don't know the whole thing. It sure seems like it's only a superstition of the people. But what we do know is the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and ancient witnesses, meaning preachers who first started preaching out of John or making commentaries about the Gospel of John, didn't have that verse. And, of course, we added in 1200 the chapters, and we added in the 1500s the verses. So after you add the chapters and the verses, and then you discover the most reliable manuscripts never had that verse, now you've got numbers, 
Now what do you do with a new translation? You have to put it in the footnote or you have to bracket it because somebody inevitably is going to be in a Bible study in a home somewhere or in Sunday school and somebody's going to go, well, the King James didn't leave it out. All the others are corrupt. Well, the King James didn't know it wasn't originally there when they were making their translation. Anyway, uh, some people will then question, well, how valid is the Bible then? If you have missing verses, this is kind of weird. And you're going to say, and most scholars will say, verse 4 wasn't there. Well, up behind me you can see a chart, and you can see that when it comes to comparing other ancient writings, the Bible is way ahead. Nothing comes even a close second. It can't. All the seconds would be way behind. Look at those numbers that you see up behind me. So the, the best one that has the number of manuscripts, the greatest amount, is Homer, the Iliad. There are 643 of those ancient manuscripts. And the oldest one is 400 B.C., but it was written in 900 B.C., which means there's 500 years in between of manuscripts that we don't have. But you look at the New Testament, not even including the Old Testament manuscripts, but the New Testament, the earliest copy is 125 A.D., and the time span of difference in the latest writing and the earliest copy is between 25 and 50 years. And there's 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament compared to 643 of the second place in ancient literature. And nobody questions whether Homer wrote the Iliad or the Odyssey. There's a lot more that you probably will want to look at when you see charts like this, but I want to at least give you this information so it can comfort you. Less than one half of 1% of the Bible is tainted with these kinds of textual problems. And for your information, not a single little tainting, not a single little discrepancy changes any doctrines of God. It doesn't alter anything, which is good. But I want to give you three resources up front so that if you want to study further, you can do this on your own. And my favorite about how we got the Bible is from God to Us by William Geisler and Norman, I'm sorry, Norma Geisler and William Nix. <clears throat> That's up behind me. It's been rewritten. The first copy was, I think, 1973. This one's 2000-something. I don't remember. 2003, something like that. Very good book on how we got the Bible. Talks about textual criticism and these kinds of problems. It will comfort you to read something like that, and it will equip you to answer people who criticize whether the Bible is genuine. Uh, second thing I would recommend to you is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and his son. They wrote it together. Originally, Josh wrote the first one, and then he did several revisions over the years as he traveled across colleges and universities in the United States and abroad and would listen to criticisms of people, because most colleges and universities, unless you send them to a Christian one, and even if you send them to one that says they're Christian sometimes, they, they teach the kids to, uh, I won't say hate, but despise God, Jesus, and the Bible. And he traveled all over and would take their challenges and answer them head on. And so he kept revising because they would have different questions but this guy approached it from an angle of a lawyer. So if you, if you go before a judge, let's weigh the evidence in favor of or against God, Jesus, and the Bible. 
And this book is chock full. It's not one of those books you read from front to back, although I have multiple times. Uh, I highly recommend it as a resource so you can look things up. And then the third one is Lee Strobel's DVD or Blu-ray series, because you've heard of his books, but The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, and The Case for the Creator, those three DVD or Blu-rays are worth sitting down and watching. And probably the most impressive of them all is The Case of, for the Creator. But uh, all of them are worth your time and energy if you need to feel like you need more information about how you can trust this book. But let's continue in our text. John chapter 5, verse 5. <clears throat> One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. There's two things we should pay attention to here. First of all, the amount of time that this person could not care for himself. This person was in this condition for 38 years. It's not like some of us who have some aches and pains that have come upon us in the past several years. This person has tremendous problems. Because if you're an invalid, if you, let's say you can't walk, after a while, what happens is your bones become fragile because you haven't been using them. So even if I could stand a person up like this, and help them try to walk, their bones would not stand up under the pressure because they haven't walked on them for a long time. It doesn't take very long before they become weak and brittle. His bones would actually begin to bend. They would become disfigured because he's not been using them. Not only that, the muscles would atrophy. There would not be muscles that could be functional because that, that's why you go through physical therapy. You've got to get your body ready to do what it needs to do that it hasn't been doing after the surgery, and that's only been a little bit ago. 38 years, he has muscles that do not work. He has bones that will not support his weight. So when this man goes through the healing that we're going to read about, this isn't just simply what you see on television or in faith healings. This is not somebody who slowly gets up and easily, and, and you can't see if any physical change. This person's body changed in front of everybody. Suddenly, this man who did not have any muscles in his legs had muscles in his legs. This man who had crooked bones in his legs suddenly were straight enough that he could walk on them and strong enough. So physically, they changed in front of everybody's eyes. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but it has to happen in order for him to be able to walk. That's one thing. He's been crippled for 38 years. He's also used to this. Now, I recently had an experience that's uh, quite telling. I have lived my adult life fully convinced that most of us, well, no, all of us are critical by nature. We're, we tend to be negative. Left to ourselves, we'll be negative. But I, I, ha I learned something this week that we all have this positive thing in us. It's not just that we're always ready to be negative, because we tend to be, but we also have this thing in us that's almost natural, that's positive, that wants to come out. And I learned this this week because since I've been working in the prison environment on a daily basis, when I started this, masks were required and have been required all along, so I did not know what other people's faces looked like. They didn't know what my face looked like. And suddenly, at the end of this week, 
the mandate flew away and all of a sudden nobody's got masks on. And I actually said out loud what a lot of people were thinking. Oh my goodness, I definitely, I, I was, something's wrong with me because I was expecting all of your faces to look better. I'm sorry. I just thought, you know, you pull your mask off like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. And, and the funny thing is, that's what people did is they laughed because everybody was thinking the same thing. They told me, yes, yes, yes. We all assume people's faces look better than they do. Isn't that funny? So there's some kind of optimistic side. That's only a couple years of, of this being used to seeing people's masks on their face, and we're all struggling. Like every time we get up from our desk, it's like, oh, where's my mask? I got to put it on. No, you don't. Don't have to do it now. It's, just, it's become the thing we do. This man has been an invalid for 38 years. Can you imagine how strange the normal felt to him as it just changed? We haven't got to that part yet, but I want you to pay attention. It's been 38 years. This is a huge huge miracle. But the second thing we need to pay attention to in this verse is that word invalid. We'd like for you to pay attention to it, look at it closely, because it's a, it's a word that we use even today. It's probably a word that we're going to eventually be told we can't say. But how does it feel to be told you as a person are invalid? Some of you know what it feels like to be treated like that. Some of you know what it feels like to just feel like that, not necessarily that you're treated that way, but you think that other people see you that way. There was a couple years of my life that I was diagnosed and classified as permanently and totally disabled. And I spent a significant amount of that time in a wheelchair I felt like, man, I'm too young for this, and I don't, I don't want to go through this. And I had the, the disabled parking placard thing that I hung up, but I didn't like to use it. Because I looked around and I thought, man, people are worse than me. And what sickened me is how many people would park in those places that didn't have a right to park in those places just because they're in a hurry. And I would park out because I'm thinking, I'm in a wheelchair I can park way out. It's okay. I've got strong arms. I can get there. But I can tell you when you're in a wheelchair and somebody's behind you, which is nice if somebody's pushing you around, and I, you know, I've did that for a while, <clears throat> most people don't want to make eye contact with you. If you're in a wheelchair, people don't want to look at you. People would rather talk to the people that are behind you or around you, but not to the one in the wheelchair. And if they do, they get real uncomfortable and look away real quick. And it, it's just an awkward thing. It just, I know they don't mean to be insulting. They don't mean to think of you as a person who is invalid. But once I was out of a wheelchair, I guarantee you this, I always make it a point to engage with those in wheelchairs. And I hope that you will listen from me do that because they get ignored a lot. And how good it is for a Christian to treat somebody who feels invalid like they are important. So here's a guy that's been treated like he's unimportant for a long time. Can you imagine how it looks to him? He can't get himself into the water. He has to have help. For 38 years... All the other healthier people who have less wrong with them that jump in the water first, nobody even thinks 
to help that guy who needs healing more than them. And some of you are going through life right now, and there's stuff you're going through, and you don't tell other people. You tell God. You don't tell other people because you feel like you're not that important. You feel like it's other people have greater needs and that kind of thing. This guy, that's what he's feeling. So let's move to the next verse. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now that is an interesting thing. The creator of the universe, who knows this guy's answer before he asks it, still asks it. Is it possible that sometimes he might feel like asking us, Okay, so you're not okay. Do you actually want to get better? Because I can tell you, I know a whole lot of people right now who don't want to get better. It's, it's easy to stay right where they are and keep doing right what they're doing because anything else will require more of them. So, no. I've got story after story of people who were living homeless that I've personally helped out that in the end... They chose to go back to being homeless because they don't want to be better. It's easier. I mean, right now in the world in which we live, it's not necessarily the churches. Sometimes it's actually the government that gives so many things to people who don't want to work. There's no incentive. I'm not saying this because I'm mean. I'm saying this because that's what they tell me. Why would I go, want to go to work? I get money. I get housing. I, I get food. I get health care. Why would I want to work? So he asked the guy who's been an invalid for 38 years, do you actually want to get better? That's a legitimate question. You got some people in your family, some people in your neighborhood, some people under the bridge, some people you might know. It's a good question. Jesus might want to know, might want them to think about it. Do you, do you want to get better? Because if you don't want to, why should somebody else spend time, energy, and money on you if you don't actually want to get better? That's a good question. We'll move on. <clears throat> Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. So you can imagine him struggling. Maybe he's crawling on his elbows. I don't know how he's trying to get to the water, but always somebody gets there before him. Did Jesus ask him, Why don't you get yourself into the water? No. He said, Do you want to get well? And this man chose to whine. Now, there was a, a very interesting situation with me, and I wish I could remember the details of the words that came out of my mouth. But I remember a time when I, was, I went back to my first undergraduate seminary to finish what I had started. And as I did that, there were some professors sitting there in the intake area. And as I went through 
They asked some kind of question, I gave some kind of answer, and when I gave the answer, those two professors that were sitting there looked at each other, didn't say a word, and then just looked at their papers and processed me through. And because of that, they were, they were kind enough to not say whatever was on their minds, but it was enough for me to realize I just whined. And it made me self-evaluate, like, think about, they didn't ask you what you gave an answer to, but you whined, and that's what this man's doing. Jesus said, do you want to get well? He didn't say, oh, yes, sir, I want to get well. He just came up with an excuse. Notice the next verse. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, I didn't ask you that. Why'd you answer the wrong question? No, he didn't say that. He didn't even focus on that. He said, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now, there are people who like to read this and say, look at that. That man had some real faith in Jesus. I'm going to show you a little bit in our text. He had no faith in Jesus. But I fully believe that he felt the healing. It says... At once, the man was healed, which means his bones were strengthened and muscles appeared. He could feel it. He knew he could get up and walk. So as Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk, the man could tell, I can. So he got up, he picked up his mat, and he walked. Keep that in mind. Now we'll look at verse 10. Oh, wait, sorry. No, we won't. Let's look at the rest of it. This is the end of verse 9. Now that day was a Sabbath. Well, why, is that, why does it say that? Because it matters. Because remember those legalistic leaders, the Pharisees in particular, but Sadducees as well, they made up all these extra rules. And one of them was you couldn't even do things like pick up your mat and carry your mat. Like you think that's what God meant when he said on this Sabbath you should rest? That's not what he meant. <laughs> But that's how they interpreted it, and that's what they forced on everybody else, some more over-regulation. It's crazy that they have all these over-regulations. Maybe we can relate to the over-regulations. You're not going to be able to buy a gas-powered new car in a few years. Did you know that? Well, that's political. Well, guess what? So is this. This is political. This is not religious. They've got religious leaders that have turned things politically, and now they try to control everybody, because that's the way politics work. They're trying to control everybody. You can't pick up your mat and walk. You watch how this plays out. Now we'll go to verse 10. So the Jews, there's a note there that's particularly talking about the Jewish leaders, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, it's a legitimate thing for the man to answer the way he responded. Because the, the, the overzealous, overreaching politicians that are now running the people of God, there they are in the temple area, and they're telling him, 
you shouldn't be carrying your mat. This man was just healed after 38 years. Probably doesn't really care about these regulations. But over the years, he's been right here in the temple area. He's got some religion because he's hearing all this stuff. Whether or not he's a dedicated Jewish person or not, we don't know. But what we do know is that he knows enough to know that he needs an excuse. They're getting on to me. I'm in trouble. I'm working on the Sabbath according to their rules. Look, the guy who healed me told me to do this. Seems legitimate. I mean, (laughs) muscles and bones are back. I mean, hey, that guy's the one who told me to do it. So I'm not going to tell him no. It's legitimate. Let's pick up with verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Of course there's a crowd. That's a a big deal. When somebody suddenly has bones that are healed and muscles that have appeared, and this guy, everybody knows him that goes into that area because they've seen him there for so long, there's no way this man can walk. And now he's walking. This is a huge testimony. Jesus moves away from the crowds again. He does this a lot. It's like he's not magnetized because crowds appear. It's not something that makes him happy. But some people love to say that if, you're, if you want the blessings of God, you should have faith. And that's a good idea because you've got a better chance of having the blessings of God to have faith. But some will go further to say that you will not get the blessings of God. You will not get healing unless you have faith in Jesus. Problem with that theory is this verse. He didn't even know who it was that healed him. He had no faith in Jesus. He didn't even know who he was. They asked him, who was it that told you to do that? He didn't know. That's what your Bible says. That's what my Bible says in John 5, 13. He had no faith, and yet Jesus healed him. So that blows a hole in the theory that there is no healing without faith, because there can be, because there was. So don't take it too far. Trust God's word, because he's right. Now let's move on in the text. Picking up with verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Wow. So he went to him and confronted him. Notice what he didn't say. You don't know who I am? Let me tell you who I am. He didn't say that. What he said was, just because he knows, this man knows this guy has amazing, miraculous powers. And this is what Jesus said, see, you're well. So he's reminding the man, I healed you and you're still well. I mean, it worked. And he said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So he needs to modify his behavior. The expectation that Jesus has for him is not to have faith in Jesus at this particular moment. The expectation is, you need to stop misbehaving, or something worse is going to happen to you. And we all should take a lesson from this. God expects us to modify our behavior to please Him, lest we get taught a lesson. This, this, goes a, this takes a turn here, by the way. 
let's move on in the text and you'll see. Picking up with verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Let me, now I'm not going to suggest that you mark this out in your Bible or anything like that, but let me go ahead and insert a thought for you. Let's go ahead and call him an ingrate. Watch this up behind me. The ingrate went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Think about the situation. Who was it that told you to pick up your mat? I don't know, but Jesus found him. You need to stop doing those things you're doing or something worse is going to happen to you. So as soon as Jesus confronted him, instead of thinking, oh, I need to change, he's right. What did he do? He goes to the religious leaders and go, there he is. That's the guy. Go get him. That's what he's doing. Instead of saying, thank you for healing me. Thank you so much. I will do better. I'm going to change my life. Instead of that, his response was, well, now there he is. They're looking for him. You're, that's the guy you're looking for. He's the one who told me to break your rules. What kind of person does this? An ingrate. That's who does it. Somebody who is not appreciative of the blessings of God. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't realize the gravity of the situation. But he's certainly not appreciative of the miraculous healing that he cannot ignore. The ingrate went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's not very nice. (laughs) Look at the last part of our passage. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So they're not liking this Jesus who's already gone around and done miracles. They've heard about it. Now he did this big one, and he's getting credit for it. But they want to nitpick. They want to find something wrong with him. They, they want to they hang on to their horribly divisive and controlling rules, what they've already decided. They're, they're going to stick to this plan. And Jesus' response is brilliant. He's not nullifying the Sabbath, but he's telling them, you, you think God has been resting? You know, he did that to show you what man should do. He stays busy working. Because my father is working, I'm working. He is also, again, claiming deity. He's equating himself with God. My father keeps working even on the Sabbath. He's going to answer your prayers on the Sabbath. I also will work on the Sabbath. Okay, that's a whole lot to try to take in, so we'll try to wrap it all up in what have we learned. Seven things. First of all, Jesus can and does heal people miraculously. Some people today will try to claim that he doesn't do that anymore, and I don't find any practical or biblical indication uh, of that, so I don't support that idea at all. I know that throughout the New Testament, Jesus did miracles, and I have been a part of praying for people who, and I have seen miraculous healings in modern times. If you want to know some of that, I'll 
help, I'll gladly share some of those things. I believe that he still does miraculous things. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that he won't, that he will stop. So there you have it. Second, Jesus wants to know if you want to be better. You might want to think about that sometimes when you do ask him for things and you say, Jesus, I need help with this. Jesus, I, I need this healing. Whatever it is, think about him wanting to know, do you really want this? Because this comes with responsibilities on your part. <clears throat> Remember the guy, he asked him, do you want to get well? The guy didn't even give him the right answer. But Jesus still told him he had a responsibility twice. First one, pick up your mat and walk. Second one, stop sinning. Number three, sometimes Jesus heals people who don't ask for it. This guy wanted help into the water. Jesus bypassed the whole thing. And healed him immediately. Didn't make him a little better, made him all the way better. Instantly, didn't even have to get in the water. This guy didn't even have faith in Jesus, didn't know who he was. It's pretty fascinating. Number four, sometimes Jesus' grace extends to people who don't even realize who he is. No faith required. When you're praying for your non-believing friends, you should tell them. Because sometimes Jesus heals people who have no faith. Sometimes Jesus will answer our prayers for people who don't even believe in him. But maybe because he answers those prayers, they will. Number five, Jesus can overcome even enduring seemingly impossible challenges. I heard a lyric in a song recently talking about Jesus. When do impossibilities stop you? Number six. Jesus expects us to modify our behaviors. It is an expectation. It's a, it's a very disturbing thing for people to see those who claim to be Christian who don't care to modify their behaviors. Let me tell you what that looks like in the world of social media. If you call yourself a Christian, but you distinctly put things out there that make you look like you're not one, that makes you look like a hypocrite to every one of your friends that you tell you're a Christian. You say you're a Christian, and you put something out there on social media that clearly Christians shouldn't be doing. Or your vocabulary at work or at school or with close friends. Just because they talk that way doesn't mean you should. You say you're a Christian. Jesus expects us to modify our behaviors. We're supposed to act differently once we've been touched by him. We should know better. Number seven, and the final thing, sometimes we get too caught up in things and miss the message he has for us. It's real easy to get caught up in things because 
We're busy people. For the most part, there's always things that are undone. There's always more that we need to do. In the middle of a church service, we might even feel like, oh, yeah, after church, I need to do this, and I need to do that, and I've um, got so many things to do. And we could actually miss the message that God has for us in the middle of a song that we're singing to prepare us for communion because we're thinking about other things. Or maybe even in our own personal devotions that we're reading in the morning, we're going through Scripture, but we don't get it because we're too focused on other things. We're not focused on getting from God what He wants for us. Or in the middle of a message on a Sunday morning and we think, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I know this story. Maybe because we think things like that, we miss the message He has for us. Do you want to get well? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. It's so powerful. It moves me and it convicts me. Thank you for loving me enough to confront me with your word on a regular basis. God, as I pray in one voice for all of us that are here, I ask that you will continue to confront us and to move us and to motivate us to read your word and see what it says and not just take it on the surface. Help us to understand and help us to try to live it out in, in a way that's pleasing to you. We know we have to modify our behaviors. Thank you for the reminder. And thank you for having us in a church family that loves each other, helps each other out, so that none of us feel invalid. Thank you for loving us through the people that are here and through others. In Jesus' name. Amen.